what a great and marvelous text. Except it confuses me. So, help me. When did the Holy Spirit fall? I thought it was supposed to fall on Pentecost. And yet here in John chapter 20, it's Easter Sunday evening. And they received the Holy Spirit. So, which is it? There's no mention of Pentecost here. I mean, isn't Pentecost supposed to be the day when the Holy Spirit falls? That's some 50 days away, and yet, here it is, receive the Holy Spirit. Is this just John and his quirky timeline? You know John, he's got to do things differently. Just John and his quirky timeline? Surely, if we look at the other Gospels, this will help us a great deal. We can look at Mark. Well, forget Mark. Um, because Mark's a mess at the end. And uh, you're not really quite sure where that ends. They're either Jesus is unrevealed and they're all afraid, or it's got the other thing about drinking poison and snakes, and maybe that's not too good. So let's forget Mark for the moment. And surely if we get to Matthew, Matthew will have great help for us, except in Matthew there is no Holy Spirit revelation at all there. There is indeed Jesus in the upper room, on Easter night, but no Holy Spirit is mentioned, no breathing of the Spirit. He suggests the disciples traveled back to Galilee, of all things, that they traveled back to Galilee, and there they worshiped Jesus on a mountain that he told them about, and there he revealed himself to them. And then he gave them the great commandment, which I'm really curious about, because how do you reconcile that with Jesus' words in Acts 1-4, where they're supposed to tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has fallen? So how did they get to Galilee? And so um, <clears throat> I'm a little confused. Hopefully Luke will help us out, and Luke does indeed, since he is the most comprehensive of the four Gospels about the story of the resurrection all those resurrection appearances that we like to talk about during Easter, they're mostly there in the Gospel of Luke, along with the Emmaus Road and the Upper Room and Thomas and all that kind of stuff and the Great Commission that is given there and also the Ascension is even mentioned uh, in the Gospel of Luke. So, you know, finally we get there, but the problem is there's no mention in Luke about them receiving the Holy Spirit during this time. Luke waits to tell you about that in his second volume in the book of Acts. The reality is that all of these Gospels end rather abruptly after the revelation of the resurrection. They don't go on for chapters and chapters talking about the implication of the resurrection. They simply recognize that Jesus was resurrected. Maybe they share a story or two about something that happened, and then they're finished. So the question of the Gospels, the question of the Gospels and the Holy Spirit falling is a bit murky, to say the least. It's, it's a little undefined. Maybe it's yet to be determined in the story of how we write this. And specifically, we've got to come to grips with the idea of how do you, how do you rationalize, how, how do you somehow reconcile the, what we have here in John chapter 20 and what we have then later in Acts chapter 2. 
They appear to be in conflict with one another, so how do we resolve it? And here's the joy. If you look at it deeper, it gets worse. In John chapter 20, verse 22, it says, And then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, beyond the problem with didn't this occur in Acts chapter 2, is that you have this in conflict with John chapter 16. Because in John chapter 16, when Jesus is going through all of this rather wonderful stuff about the Holy Spirit and the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to come, in verse, uh, chapter 16 and verse 7, he says this, But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus hasn't left yet, and so how does he send to them the Spirit when he's still with them? because I thought he had to leave them in order to send him back. It's Easter Sunday night. He's not going to go away for some time, uh, some days, some weeks before he ascends. Even in the ascension that's talked about and referred to at points in other Gospels, there appears to be some time before he ascends. But in John, on Easter Sunday night, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, uh, even though I haven't gone anywhere. Another problem comes with Thomas, because immediately following this uh, story in, uh, in uh, John chapter 20 is the story of the upper room revelation and Thomas, and Thomas is not there, <coughs> excuse me, J Thomas is not there when Jesus says receive the Holy Spirit. They tell him about this, and then comes the whole story with Thomas and his doubts and all that goes with that. So apparently, the Holy Spirit does not fall on all of the disciples. It falls on everybody except Thomas because undoubtedly the implication is that doubting is the unpardonable sin at this point, and he doesn't get to receive the Holy Spirit. Is that what this is about? Is that what this says? How do you reconcile this mess? Well, let me go a little further, a little deeper. Should we even point this out? Is this something we should even preach about? Should we even teach on this? I mean, after all, we're ending up causing problems, aren't we? Do we end up causing confusion? Maybe it's best that we just ignore these kinds of problems. We should just preach the clear passages of Scripture, the stuff that we can clearly get. We'll skip over the tough stuff. We'll skip over the things that don't seem to quite fit together because our view of Scripture is what? That it doesn't work. Or that God is confused. Or that his revelation is in conflict. Is this what we're saying? We end up teaching our people that you can't think through these things, and therefore, don't bother with them. Just move on to the next thing that we can say clearly and easily. I've been told by more than one person that you can't preach on this stuff. And I tell you, I find that statement 
disturbing. Because it, it tends to believe, it tends to affirm that there are some things you can't resolve or there are things about God and about his word that cannot be known or explained. Shouldn't we be teaching our folks how to resolve tough places? I mean, they're going through tough things, aren't they? I mean, it's not like their lives are just all smooth and hunky-dory and easy and every place is an oasis. They're going through the ups and downs. They're going through the valleys. Shouldn't we teach them how to struggle with Scripture, how to deal with texts, how to work with the Word, even when there are things in the Word that don't seem to connect with other things in the Word? Shouldn't we help them resolve such things? Maybe that's the call that we have together. For instance, in this text, it says that he breathed on them. He breathed on them. And let me tell you, that's significant. Because it's not a word that is common in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it is the Greek word emphasao, which, from which we get like emphysema. Emphysao, and it's the only used here in the New Testament. So it's a very deliberate and unusual expression that John chooses to use. Now, it's not the only time it's ever used in the Greek, but it's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. In the Greek Septuagint, you know, the Old Testament in, in Greek, in the Greek Septuagint it gets used. It gets used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God is creating human beings and he breathes into them life. Maybe that's important for us. Could it be that we've misunderstood the meaning of Pentecost? And that this is not Pentecost. We, I think we know that. This is neither a substitute for Pentecost, nor is it a replacement for Pentecost. Pentecost does happen. It is real. But what is this? What is this where God breathes life into them? Is this some kind of pre-Pentecost, maybe? Maybe it's the idea that God is preparing them for Pentecost. We have this sense that when the Holy Spirit falls, that the Holy Spirit's got to fall out of some kind of shock and surprise that we're not expecting. And yet, when you start looking through not only the end of John, but the beginning of Acts, everything is about preparing them. Everything is about getting them ready. Jesus has been telling them since at least John 16 that this is coming, and they didn't, he's been telling them about the resurrection. They didn't get that very well. So he's trying to prepare them for the fact that they're about to receive the Holy Spirit. And that's not just, you know, just wait here and I'll dump it on you when you least expect it. Maybe there's a sense in which God is preparing for the life the emphasao, to come into them that will be the Holy Spirit. Thayer talks about the fact that this is the common prophetic call almost. And he hearkens back to the story in Ezekiel 37 of the dry bones. And the fact that he's called, Ezekiel's called into this valley of dry bones, you know the story, and to bring these bones together. And he starts to call on them to come together. And he's supposed to breathe on them. And he breathes on them and life begins to come into them. But that's a process, isn't it? 
that's a, that's a preparation. Get them together. Bring them together. Then this will happen. Then this will happen. And then finally they will become living souls. Maybe there's a, a need for preparation for the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit falls. I don't know what your experience is with the Holy Spirit, but I can at least testify about my own experience of receiving the Holy Spirit is that while it was an event for me, while there was a moment, while there was an experience of receiving the Holy Spirit, there was an awful lot of preparation that went into that moment when I sought to receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe when Jesus is talking here, he's talking to not just his disciples, but to all of us to tell us that we're supposed to prepare to receive the Holy Spirit. God prepares us before he permeates it. He builds us up before he baptizes us. He fills in before he fills us up. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, that he prepares the ground and then he plants and fills. Which, if true, may help explain the next phrase after breathed on them, which is receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and then says receive the Holy Spirit. Rather than imparting the totality of the Spirit to them, he begins here to prepare their, their vessels for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's kind of a, uh, maybe this is prevenient grace in some sort of fashion before sanctifying grace. If prevenient grace is a reality, that we have this grace enough to be able to respond to God before we get saved, then maybe there's a kind of prevenient sanctifying grace that is this grace that enables us, prepares us to receive the Holy Spirit. Because there has to be this point of revelation. If John 20 and other passages in the Gospels about the resurrection hold true, it's about Jesus is revealing himself. He is revealing who he is. And in revealing himself, he's preparing them for the things that are coming next. Why else does Jesus do all this revealing? He reveals himself to Mary Magdalene in the garden. He reveals himself to the disciples in the upper room. He reveals himself to the men walking on the road to Emmaus. He reveals himself to the disciples in the boat with a great catch of fish. He reveals himself in time and time again. He reveals himself to Thomas in the miraculous draught of fish and the restoration of Peter in, in Paul on the Damascus road. He's revealing himself piece by piece, time by time, so that when this moment comes of infilling, they have something to depend on because God has been preparing the ground and revealing himself that he's about to do something incredible. Boy, this is a needed message. Because we've got people that walk in Sunday after Sunday, and you know what they're expecting? Nothing. nothing. As a matter of fact, if you do something out of order, you'll hear about it. Because God isn't supposed to be doing anything. God is supposed to be in line. He's supposed to do what he always is supposed to do, which basically is sit down, be quiet, and let us do worship. What if Part of the problem with that is not their attitude in terms of people coming to worship. What if the problem is us? 
as leaders, as preachers, that we're not creating this sense of expectation that God is preparing you, that God is about to do something, that God is up to something, that God wants to do something in you and in us. What if we walked into, into Sunday worship and we didn't know what was going to happen and we weren't sure what God was going to do? What if we came with expectation and we came with a sense that God was up to something and we were about to see it? Maybe the problem is that we haven't created enough anticipation of the power and movement of God through the Holy Spirit in all of our lives and in all of our gatherings. Maybe we just don't expect him to do much. Maybe it's time that we revitalize this teaching. And on Sunday after Sunday, and Wednesday after Wednesday, and board meeting after board meeting, we keep harping on the idea that God is breathing on us. And if he's breathing on us, he's up to something. And we are waiting for what he's about to do. Every sermon, every sermon, is designed to create in those who preach and those who listen a sense of expectation. Too much of our preaching is conclusions. I got it all set. Here's the period. Now go home. It's all safely neat tucked away. Preaching today think has to move to questions and anticipations and possibilities. For this God whom we serve cannot be placed in a box and cannot be limited to what we printed in the bulletin. He's got something more to do. We sang that today, didn't we? Did we mean it? Or did we just sing it? we living it, or we're just talking about it? I believe that the Holy Spirit is always ready to do something that we do not expect. Dawn, if you and the worship team will come. I would like to end this service today singing, but I would also like to end it with the opportunity for you to be anointed with oil. I'm going to stand here in the well, and those of you that would like to come, I'd like to anoint you with the oil that is here. Oil, as you surely know, is used throughout the Old Testament and into the New as a symbol of the presence of the Spirit of God. I believe firmly that the Spirit of God is present here. I believe he's present in classrooms and in the offices around here. I think he envelops this place, but I believe he's present here. And maybe today it's worthwhile for those of you that so choose to come and to be anointed as a sense of, I know you're here, Lord, and I know you're working. And I know you're preparing me for that which you have called me to become.
that which you are waiting for me to partake in. And so I'm going to stand here in the well with the oil. And those of you that want to may come and be anointed as a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit and of his preparation in your life. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Lord, fall on us not because we are worthy of your presence, but because we are needy of your presence. Not because we've got it all figured out, Lord, but because we are expecting you to do even more. Your great grace, O oh Lord, is upon us. So let your spirit fall, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.